from Silicon Valley, the heart of startup land. It's Getting to Alpha, the show about creating innovative, compelling experiences that people love. And now, here's your host, game designer, entrepreneur, and startup coach, Amy Jo Kim. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Today, our guest is Erica Hall, the co-founder of Mule Design, a top-notch digital design studio, and the author of Just Enough Research, a supremely useful handbook for product people who want to improve their design process with smart, effective user research. Erica uses business goals to focus a project and customer insights to inform the design. Like me, she's a pragmatist who's collected a big bag of research techniques and knows which ones to pull out to get the job done. I'm a huge, huge advocate of remote research because I think that really allows you to talk to as many different types of people in as many different locations as possible. And I think that's much more important. Like you do lose something by not being, you know, in somebody's home or office, but what you gain is the ability to talk to far more people with a much lower overhead. Erica is offering a customer research workshop this coming Friday, February 5th, and several more workshops over the coming months to help you with your design and research. The link is in the episode notes. If you're in the Bay Area, be sure to check that out. And if you want smart, effective customer research tips, Erica's work is right up your alley. Listen in. Welcome, Erica, to the Getting to Alpha podcast. Let's start off with a whirlwind tour of your background. How did you first get started in design and tech? I was always a big nerd growing up, <laughs> and I spent more time at Radio Shack probably than, than most little girls in Los Angeles, and uh, was just out of, I'm not sure out of where, I was always very interested in programming and computers and but when I went to college, you know, I went to a liberal arts school and I ended up studying philosophy, uh, which might seem very impractical. But it, it turned out that, you know, that was right in the very, very early days of the web. And it, it turned out that that was a really fantastic course of study because I find in, you know, thinking about experience design and interface design, a lot of those questions of you know, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Thinking about different elements of a system in an abstract way, as well as having that ethical component to thinking about what you're doing has been really, really helpful in design. And so after I I graduated, my first job was actually in a, a venture capital partnership, just randomly. It was the first, you know, I need a job out of college. And that was fascinating to see it. I was just an assistant, but I, I really got to see that whole side of, of entrepreneurship, like that was my first view of it was from within the VC office. And then after that, I went into online publishing and from there into the consulting side of it, you know, kind of hired gun, come in and really understand and solve different business problems for people with design and communication. And I found that so interesting that you know, my partner Mike and I ended up founding Mule Design in 2001, and we've kept it small, and we've just really been able to work. Uh, you know, we have a team of usually about you know ten a dozen people, and we work on just a really interesting range of different business problems in publishing, application design, 
you know, branding and strategy, all those sorts of things. So that was the really super quick how I, I got to, to where I am. You so say you're a nerd philosopher. Yeah. Yeah. My first major was Russian. So it was a, it was a journey. Wow. So it sounds like you really enjoy the challenge of having an ongoing stream of new projects coming in. <laughs> how do you go about crafting a new project? I know there's probably many steps and many people involved and probably depends on the scale of the project. But when you start, you sit down and you start to say, okay, here's this client and we've decided mm-hmm. we're going to work with them and they have this problem to be solved. What is your process? How do you uh, get your hands around it early in the design process? It all comes from their business goals. Like sometimes uh, an organization or individuals, entrepreneurs will approach us and say, oh, we'd like to work with you, but they don't really have clear business goals. Uh, that's, that's not a good fit for us. That's not a situation in which we can work because in order to have a design project, like the kind of we do, what we do is use the tools of design to help somebody with their business. And that's business construed very broadly. But if they don't really have a clear goal, there's, you know, there's not much for us to do there. I mean, sometimes we can do a research and strategy project with them to understand if there's an opportunity. We do sometimes do something like that, but we really make sure not only that we clearly understand what the goal is, but that everybody on the client side is also very clear on that and what their priorities are. Because from that, we can decide, oh, who are the audiences we need to understand? Who's the competition? What's the real challenge here? And we can often, you know, uncover maybe the exciting part for us is uncovering potential opportunities that maybe didn't initially see because they were thinking about something very narrowly. But it really, really all comes down to the clarity of their goals. How do you incorporate um, lightweight user research into your design projects? Well, we always uh, start, yeah, no matter the size of the project, really, we, we try to talk to some representative end users. And, you know, depending on what the questions are, you know, because once we, once we have the the goals. And once we sort of understand the general scope of the project, then we say, well, what are the big questions that we have at the outset that we need to answer to, uh, to meet those goals? And so we really, we take a very strategic approach, you know, to make sure that we uh, are making the best use of, of you know, our, our clients' resources and, and our time is to say, what are the things that we most need to know about the target customer and about the general business context, because frequently, you know, clients will come to us and they will have some amount of research or uh, some understanding or some strategy. And we say, okay, this, this gives us this amount of information. So what are the, the big sort of assumptions or big unknowns and start from there. And then from that, we understand who we need to recruit, you know, what types of people we need to talk to and what information, we, like what we need to understand from them. And, you know, we typically do interviews, you know, they may be in person, they may be remote. There might be some initial usability. That's sometimes something we do if we're working with an existing product or service. We can do benchmark usability, you know, in a remote context. Like we're, 
I'm a, I'm a huge, huge advocate of remote research because I think that really allows you to talk to as many different types of people in as many different locations as possible. And I think that's much more important. Like you do lose something by not being, you know, in somebody's home or office, but what you gain is the ability to talk to far more people with a much lower overhead. So Erica, what are some of the mistakes that you see, especially first time entrepreneurs making that you would love them to get smarter about and not make? Yeah, I think that the biggest one is generalizing from their own personal experience and preferences. I mean, that's the biggest and most obvious one is to say, oh, I have this problem or I'm in this situation. So I'm like, I'm the user. And, you know, there, there are far, far more people who aren't like you than there are like you. And so really, you know, finding those people and sort of expanding your idea of who might be in your market and who really has a real problem and whether it's a real problem. And I think that's the big one. And the other one is just wanting to be, to be proven wrong without necessarily building a prototype first, because I think there's this idea of, okay, step one is build a prototype. But I think you first, you need to really understand what problem you're solving and whether it's a real problem. Because your prototype, you know, prototype is like a hypothesis and that's, and it can be really good to go out there and build. But I think there are things you can do to determine if you're solving a real problem before you put all the time and effort into actually building that prototype. And one of those things is, you know, really talking to people to, to understand the problem you're trying to solve from their perspective. And I think that can do a lot to, to make sure that you're building in the right place. That's awesome. So drilling down on that a little bit more. If you are giving some, I know there's a lot of skill and nuance that goes into being a great researcher. <laughs> there really is. But if you were going to give two or three tips to entrepreneurs who said, I believe you, Erica, I buy into it. Give me a few tips to help me be a smart researcher as I have these conversations. What would you tell them? Well, the, the most important one is to get comfortable just being very quiet <laughs> because I think a lot of people think of interviewing as talking, as having to have really good questions and, you know, wanting to demonstrate your skill as an interviewer. But I think if you get the right person and you just get them talking, entrepreneurs have a lot of enthusiasm. Like you have to have a lot of energy and a lot of enthusiasm, but I think sometimes that can lead to them interjecting themselves too much into an interview process or into the research, but just saying, okay, I know what my question is and really giving the stage to the people and, and to the situations they're researching and trying to keep themselves out of it as much as possible, which that's a real practice. You know, I think that's something that you learn. You, you do a lot of interviews, you do a lot of research and just trying to watch yourself to see, oh, you know, I, I kept jumping in there. I kept interjecting. You know, I think that's the hardest thing about being an interviewer doing research is just letting the silence happen and let the other person, let the participants and your research subjects come in to fill that silence because that's when you'll get the really good information. You don't really have to worry too much. If people worry like, oh, am I going to have right, the right questions? But you want to learn that you want to learn about things you might not have even thought to ask about. So, so I think I'd say that would be the sort of the first piece of advice I'd give. That's fantastic. 
what is your superpower as a designer? What's your sweet spot? Like what projects, I know you love all your projects and all your clients, but which kind of projects really tickle your fancy and you'd love to work on the most? Let's see. Well, I, I actually asked this you know, in the office today. I said, hey, anybody, <laughs> what's my superpower? And, and somebody actually said, one of our designers said he described this like in, this, in these terms and that it was seeing the big picture. He said that my, he had actually told somebody, oh, Erica's superpower quite literally is, is being able to see the big picture. And so the projects I really enjoy are the ones that are, and, and we've been getting a lot of these lately that are very transformative, particularly of an established business, uh, because a lot of times and helping organizations see themselves differently, this isn't as much of an issue for early stage companies. With them, it's more really clearly understanding, you know, as you're talking about what your what your value proposition is and making sure that you're making the best use of your resources. But to go into a very large established organization and show them that, you know, because a lot of times people come in and they say, oh, design is the surface. Design is the experience that you're showing to your end users. But what that really requires is so much change in the way people work to each other, work with each other and communicate with each other. And a level of, you know, to be effective requires this level of openness and honesty that isn't necessarily a part of a lot of business cultures. There can be a lot of politics. There can be ego. There can just be sort of insecurity about putting your idea out there. And the fact that when we come in, we create a space in which people can talk to each other in a way they've never talked to each other before and work in new ways. And to see that that's actually design work is like, that's, what's really interesting and exciting to me. And then all of the, the things that people are often attracted to and really see as part of design, you know, the visual interface, the branding, the really elegant behaviors we can introduce into a system that all flows from those business goals and the ways that people in an organization can work together to create and support whatever product or service we're designing. So a lot of times when we go, go into a client's business, you know, to, to sit down and talk with them about, about these issues, often, you know, we don't have necessarily any, you know, special genius. You know, I like to think we're smart and good at what we do, but frequently, you know, and thinking about a design problem, people inside the organization have already been thinking about it, but they don't have, you know, one way of thinking about it is they don't really have permission to say something, but we can come in and we can ask very naive questions. For example, we can come in and see how things are currently being done and look at the current workflow. And we can say, why are you doing it like that? Whereas somebody who's been working in an organization for, you know, for a few years and maybe somebody who isn't at the very highest level, that's a question they couldn't ask either because uh, it would seem, you know, disrespectful or out of line or people would, might think, oh, should, isn't this something you already know? And so we can come in and just by asking the very naive questions, the very basic how do you do things? And people might sometimes explain it and say, oh, you know, we don't, I don't actually know how we do this. Or they might say, well, we've always done it this way, or we're doing it this way for a very strange legacy reason. And just coming in from the outside can start those conversations. And then everybody can participate and they can say, oh, we're just 
following on a conversation that Mule started. So nobody else gets in trouble for anything we might say. And we can really come in, we can challenge things, we can question, you know, decisions or opinions that are held at the very high, highest levels. And we won't get in trouble because we say, well, that's what we're hired to do. And so we can provide cover for people, other people in the organization to come in and, and agree with us or disagree with us in a way that isn't threatening to the established order in the same way. And so I think that's one of the most powerful things that an outside agency can do is just to come in from the outside frequently. Uh, well, uh, you know, a lot of times it, it really is just a matter of sitting down with the team and, you know, reviewing. And, you know, there's just the there's the pretty common technique of, of like writing things down on post-it notes and, you know, grouping them and arguing about them. And it really is just talking it through to see, you know, often the, the patterns that emerge will be will be pretty obvious. You know, if, especially if we're looking at a particular sort of behavioral grouping or or segment of the of the customers, like the patterns typically, you know, even with eight or ten people, start emerging pretty quickly. And then sometimes we might say, well, you know, we're starting when we look at these patterns, we're starting to see that maybe the people we talked to were too similar, and we might want to, you know, expand you know, differently demographically or something to make sure that we're not just seeing something particular to that, like narrow geographical or age grouping or something like that. But, but really in, in just talking the through the, the patterns do emerge. And I think that's why it's really important to do this as part of a team, because that way you can sort of check, like, are we really seeing a pattern or, is this just something I personally want to be true? And that's where, you know, having that group dynamic to sort of check each other really, really helps. That's a great point. I've, uh, I've seen that happen a lot with my clients where uh, it's almost impossible not to see the pattern that you want to see. If you're invested, mm-hmm. you know, if you're very invested in your product. But again, that's another reason that having an outside yeah. firm can be very useful is it's very neutral. You're not invested at all. You just want truth. And we, and we don't just want truth. Like when we come in, and this is, this is something we, we always talk to our clients about, is if we're working with somebody, we really, really want them to succeed. And sometimes, you know, we talk a lot about, oh, you know, users have habits. Well, organizations and people in organizations have habits too. And sometimes breaking those habits can be very uncomfortable. And so we've been in positions where we've had to argue with people in the interest of their business, because they say, well, if you have a goal, your goal is not just doing things the same way you've been doing because it's personally comfortable or you you don't want to get new resources or something in your organization. So sometimes we have to say, we've heard you have this business goal. We believe you have this goal. In order to meet that goal, you really have to do some hard things. And so we, you know, find ourselves in that position of possibly actually just arguing with them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because they they're more concerned with doing things in a certain way than they are with achieving like really taking the steps to achieve that goal. And then what happens? <laughs> well, you know, it it depends. It depends on you know the organizational will. Like in in some cases, people do recognize. You know, we're it, we're working with some clients right now where it's a it's a struggle to see 
in the way that we see. And we have to, like, that's our challenge. And that's something we talk about a lot is we don't like the phrase educating the client. You know, that can seem a little condescending, but we say, well, how do we, like, they know their business, but how can we really help them understand why to do things in a particular way? Because there's, there's sort of like, there are myths. I, that's the best way I can think to characterize them of how to create an effective online information resource or service or something. And they'll really get focused on a particular solution. And we have to help them understand why a particular solution that they might have already fallen in love with is or is not the right thing for them. And and that's like that's on us to communicate to them, to help them really have that understanding and be able to develop their own kind of discernment so that they can see, oh, this will get us there. Because sometimes they just want something to be true. And that's like that's the whole research process is breaking yourself of that need, you know, of saying like, oh, I, I really want this thing I've already thought of to be true, but actually wanting to find the truth. And that's like that could be a very different mindset. And sometimes we're more successful in that. And sometimes we're less successful. Sometimes people do come in and say, well, this is the thing we're doing. And it, we do the best we can. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Something that a lot of people in this program have struggled with is when they're testing, a lot of us are very early stage with our projects. A theme has bubbled up about doing sort of somewhat opportunistic testing in the real world. like. Have there been any sort of best practices that you've gathered up about how to incorporate that kind of real world testing into a larger research program? Like how to contextualize that, how to mm -hmm. think about that? Yeah, I'd say always be really clear on your larger question, what you're trying to find out. And I think if you always have that question in mind, then you just, you know, you, you're always gathering things up around that question, like not being too concerned with the specific, again, it's not the specific questions you ask in conversation, but always think, here's what I'm trying to learn more about. And really think of research as a, a process of aggregation. You know, this type of research, it's not, we're not doing research in order to be published in a scientific journal. So you don't really have to worry too much about like, oh, am I doing this right? You have to make sure, like, am I really getting an accurate picture of the situation? And am I doing things that really help answer the fundamental question? And so you can continue to, to sort of gather the data as long as it, and collect it together. You know, MailChimp is a company I really strongly suggest looking at because they have an amazing research practice and they're very public with their methods and their methodologies. They just have a wonderful system of coding everything and just keeping it in Evernote and constantly referring back to it because nothing is ever wasted. You know, as long as you kind of keep it all together, you can continue to like go back to the things you found again and again and again. So, you know, just being clear on what you want to know and being organized about it and, you know, just having that mindset, that's the best thing of all. Always being self-correcting too, because you'll say like, oh, you know, I, I took this opportunity and I, I asked these questions and that went well. Why did it go well? And then, then sort of try to replicate that or share it with anybody else on your team. So it's that, it's also that self-reflection that's really, really important so that you always see like, 
oh, this was a good test. This was a bad test. And why? Why did I get what I needed or why didn't I? And just continue to iterate on the process and not worry too much about, oh, we didn't do it exactly the same because, you know, this is applied research and you're just, you're trying to test your idea or you're trying to optimize or perfect a product or service or something like that. And so anything that helps you is fine, you know, as long as it's basically ethical and, you know, and you just try to continue to learn. And I think a lot of times people rush to a prototype where you could, there's plenty you could do. And I think, you know, we see this all the time where businesses have decided that they're, you know, for example, what you said, like a programming course for kids, or we're going to make this product. And their question is, well, how can we make this product work? And the real question is, like, does it make sense for your business to do this? But if the project's already been greenlighted or if it's already been resourced, that's oftentimes a question people just are, they'll say, well, I guess we're doing it. And that's what I wish businesses would ask more is like, is this a real problem we should be solving? Is this a line of business that we're really suited to go into? And there's a lot of organizational questions like what does success look like for us and kind of back out from that. So to say, okay, if, if this project is a real success for us, this will happen. Well, you know, a big part of it is, is kind of a thought experiment to say what has to be true. And I think if you just start by just getting all of your assumptions out on the table and then say, okay, what gives us confidence in our assumptions? And there might be, and that's where you uncover like, Oh, this is, something we just made up. Like sometimes this will happen in conversation. We talk to clients about this business case and they'll say, well, this is what we think our users need. And we say, well, why do you think that? What's your evidence? What's your basis? And sometimes they'll say, uh, huh, I, I, I just guessed. And that's a great time to say, okay, what can we do to, to check that guess? Like we had this happen not too long ago where we'd done we'd done some research and you know the client said well but we don't think you talked to enough people over 50 and we think they're different and we told we said well we don't really think they're different in the ways you do and so we went back and went back to the people we'd recruited and talked to some people you know between 50 and 65 and then we came back and we said well actually the things that you thought were different are not different at all. They took that and said, oh, we, there was a bit of wishful thinking there. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes, especially in thinking about addressing new audiences, there can be this wishful thinking. There can be this, oh yeah, so they need this or they want this or they'll act in a certain way. And when you push on that a little bit, what you'll find is it's a hope, it's a wish that's unverified. And it's not that hard to verify. Like you can talk to some people and just, you don't even have to ask them specific questions. You can just talk to people and say, what do you do? Why do you do it like that? And that sort of walk me through your day. And then that will reveal which of your assumptions might be wishful thinking and not grounded in reality. So when you're working with a client and you, you, know, you mentioned earlier, you need to steer them. You need to bring them along for the ride. You need to tell them the things so they figure out for themselves what the problem is. How do you manage sort of their understanding of the different stages of product design? Is this something where will you build a fake landing page early on? Like, you know, how do you think about this kind of product development challenge? When we talk about habits, we we talk about habits a lot. 
And what we talk about is what people's pre-existing habits and patterns of behavior are. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about early on. I think there's, there's starting to be more and more work around this, around, you know, there's books and things coming out. So the idea that about the power of habits. So it's not, it used to be the case that people came in and said, oh, we want to innovate, right? This is, this is what people want to do. We want to do something new. And we still face this with clients who are, who come in and say, we want to do something new. We want to do something original. And you start, and so we start kind of unpacking that desire for, do you want to do something new or do you want to do something successful? We start talking to them about, well, an important thing to do is to piggyback on habits that people already have, you know, because you can't just create new meaning. You have to understand what's meaningful and you have to appear meaningful based on people's pre-existing context. And you have to seem easy and you've got to sort of hook them there and you can come up with something new, but the path to that hook has to be very familiar and people aren't going to go out of their way. And so that's a lot of the sort of priming and framing we do for people, for people on the client side, which is often a new way of thinking for people because we actually have a client we're working with currently, they're a financial services organization. And they came in, and I think part of this is because of the ad agency they're working with, with a really strong bias against text information. And they said, well, you know, we don't, we don't just want to have a lot of words. And this is, you know, this is a common thread through all things internet, ever since Jacob Nielsen said people don't really read online. And they had a really strong bias because they thought, oh, any information presented in text is that's old fashioned. People don't do that anymore. We want to come up with a new way to inform people. You know, we did the user research and we talked to people in their target and we said, you're dealing with people who are very, very busy. And sometimes we can take the user research and draw the line to like, that's the time to say, think about how you are in your own life. If you're looking for really important information, you're going to be really impatient. You're going to be concerned about credibility and all these factors. And you're not going to spend a lot of time on something that doesn't really deliver immediately. And you know, sometimes the written information, if presented correctly, has an immediate way of delivering that other sorts of information or interaction don't. And then sometimes you can have other tools, things that are interactive or video things, and they can kind of supplement that. And so we had to kind of really help them understand how things, like, like I was saying earlier, what works online in certain contexts and, and kind of let go of these I don't know if they're cliches or just ideas sort of percolating in their heads, you know, where they're like, oh, we want to do something innovative. And we're like, well, you want to be uniquely useful and you want to be fast and you want to be intelligible and all these things. But that doesn't necessarily map to an entirely new way of doing things. Talking them through somebody's complete context and the user's complete, like all of their behaviors and saying you are, you know, there's often a sort of an exercise in perspective. Because with any organization or any entrepreneur, whatever they're working on is their whole world. And so the first step is to say, well, the thing that's your entire world or your entire vision or your entire dream is one tiny, tiny part of even your best customer relationship. And, and that shift of perspective is often the first step to being open to really thinking about these things. When you look back on successful projects, 
do you see that they would have that kind of pivot moment with your client where they lean into it and say, okay, let's do this right instead of the way we dreamed? Oh, de- definitely. Like that's, that is a moment where either they, they really get it or, or they can't deal with it because so often, you know, we've been talking about the sort of day-to-day pressures that, that prevent you from kind of seeing the big picture and seeing outside your own habits and your own context, this somebody working on a particular product or service, just that, that stepping back, I think is like, Oh, of course. And it seems obvious. You know, you talk to people and, it, and they're like, oh, yeah, but you just get in this mindset and you get in these these habits. And so, yeah, we talk about how powerful habits are in all contexts. You know, and it's not just that you are trying to create a habit in your target customer. It's that you have to look at yourself and say, wow, I have a lot of habits. And some of those are, you know, work habits. Some of them are, are cognitive habits and ways of thinking of things. And if we can get that level of reflection in clients, sometimes they get very excited by it. And that's great where they're like, oh, wow, this, I have a new way of seeing my work. And that's all, that can also be very exciting for people because it creates more of a sense of like contributing value and being able to think at a higher level and not just sort of doing the same little task. That's really great when we can work with people and help them see how their part of the work really connects to something bigger and they can they can open up their perspective. So that, that really can be a, a big moment for people. And that's your superpower. That's my superpower, yeah. Looks like it's a big, it's a big thing. Thanks for listening to Getting to Alpha with Amy Jo Kim, the shows that help you innovate faster and smarter. Be sure to check out our website, gettingtoalpha.com. That's getting2alpha.com for more great resources and podcast episodes.